and welcome to Unprofessional. I am Dave Whiskers, joined as always by Jamie Newberry. Hi, Jamie. Hello. How are you? I am fantastic. <laughs> I only laugh because I follow your Twitter feed, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. That's we are also hear. joined today by the one and only Matt Gemmel. Matt Legend Gemmel. Good evening. How are you both? Very well. How are you, I think, is the more important question. I am always fantastic, Jimmy. It's <laughs> wonderful to hear. Is that true? Are you like, is wait, are you describing your like emotional state and general sense of well-being or just like your quality level? I'd like to leave that up to the listener's interpretation, Dave, I think. <laughs> I like that. That's a very good non-committal answer. But unofficially, I think I'd have to say both. That's good. Okay. That's good. I, I, I follow. Now, for the, the people out there who don't know you yet, could you give us like a, a, a quick 30 seconds, explain yourself? Uh, my name is Matt Gemmel and explicitly not Gemmel or Jamel. Uh, <laughs> I, I like, not even Gemmel, unless I'm in Amsterdam. I like long walks on the beach and romantic comedies and Italian. F- Wait, this is, this is a different kind of interview, isn't it? What are you doing later? <laughs> this is I'm afraid, perfect. I'm afraid I'm busy. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm probably best known as a software developer, uh, which I have been for the last 10 years up until the beginning of this year, uh, mostly working on the iOS and Mac platforms. Um, I ran my own business for the last seven of those 10 years, uh, but at the beginning of 2014, I made a switch and now I am writing uh, full time. So I guess now the, the short answer is I'm a writer. That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. I love it. That's good because we want more writers on the show and fewer of those iOS people. Well, I, I'm, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah. Is it, the thing that I've always wanted to ask you, is, is that your real middle name? No. Um, there's a very long story attached to it, um, which I, I, I guess we won't go into. Uh, Essentially, in, in, in short, there's a, there's a sort of informal system of law in Scotland whereby one can inform all institutions that hold a record of your name that you are henceforth going to be called such and such. And once you've been known in that manner by the new name for a couple of years, I think it is, it becomes your sort of de facto name. And it was a a sort of a bit of youthful exuberance on my part that, (laughs) that caused me to quote unquote, make that change. But I have in, in my ad- advancing years and hopefully increasing wisdom, I've now distanced myself from that indiscretion. <laughs> nice. So I shouldn't have brought it up is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, ev- everyone uh, still calls me it, so it's, it's absolutely fine. I think I actually deserve it for the, the sheer arrogance of doing it in the first place. <laughs> I always assumed it was your real name and that was just a thing. No, my parents weren't that cruel. Or they were, but in other ways. <laughs> Maybe like I, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a Scottish thing. It's like some Highlander shit going on where the, you just you get an awesome middle name. Uh, uh, maybe in Hollywood stuff, but not here. <laughs> yeah. well, see, well. now I'm curious about other the other ways your parents were cruel. <laughs> we're digging today. Yeah. Well, gosh. Um, you don't really have to. We've talk we've about only it. got an hour, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. My yeah. middle name is Dick, so it's a. Uh, well, you know, originally my, my, my birth middle name, which again, as part of that long, long story has now gone for all time, was Lindsay. 
L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, which is, which I, as you can imagine, I wasn't thrilled about at school. <laughs> I could, I could guess why. Yeah, yeah. I actually think it sounds vaguely cool now, but I'm, I'm 35 and I felt differently when I was six. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm. I never had any trouble with my middle name because nobody ever asked. It wasn't a thing. My last name, however, I, I've, I've heard every possible joke you can think of. Like what? What kind of jokes do you make with whiskers? Yeah, what are your favorites or least favorites, I suppose? Whiskers. Uh, yeah, whiskers, whiskey. Um, uh, there's a, a different spelling, but same pronunciation, whiskers cat food. Oh, whiskers, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a big thing in the UK. Nine out of ten cats prefer whiskers or whatever. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure I've said that to your face, Dave, at some point. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about Dave's that. Dave's going to have to do like a self-promotional <laughs> re-edit of one of these commercials. I'm just going to have it like I'll do a Photoshop or or something where it's like a bunch of guys at a jazz club. It's like nine out of ten cats prefer whiskers. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. I want to see it on YouTube by the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be done now. It's been talked done. about. It. Now it's got to be it. done. It's on my agenda. So, Jamie, how are you feeling right now? How am I feeling? I, I have a lot of energy, I think, from my morning walk. And, uh, yeah, feeling pretty good. And I, I have my coffee here that is substandard. We talked a little before the show, Matt, in case, you know, you're wondering here. But um, <laughs> I have I have A little Keurig. bit of background on the, back, on the coffee. <laughs> on the coffee. I have this cup of coffee here that is, it's you know, it's all right. It's a Keurig cup of coffee. And yesterday I had great coffee and today have substandard coffee but it's fine whatever i'm not above mediocre coffee i'm, I'm still jealous even if it's mediocre coffee i've been caffeine free for a number of months now really what made you decide to do that the health it, thing? It, yeah it was a kind of health thing um i was basically getting sort of rapid heartbeat a bit and the doctor said you might want to try cutting out caffeine and obviously i was you know, the Darth Vader, no! <laughs> yes. And eventually I relented and listened to medical wisdom, and sure enough, it did make a, a, a positive difference. So I'm drinking oh. decaf all the time. I had a couple, a couple of weeks of nightmare, as you might imagine, but you get used to it. Yeah. I did the exact same thing. I, uh, for me, like it wound up later being like full-blown anxiety problems, but uh, as a result, I, I had to cut caffeine out and... and uh, stop smoking and all other sorts of things that you probably should do anyway. It takes all the fun out of life, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, what what fun is life if I'm not jittery and dying early? Mm, exactly. I was just going to say, you know, who wants to live longer if it's without cigarettes and coffee? I know, right? No, I'm kidding. I don't do either of those. No, I do coffee. I do coffee. But I didn't for a really long time. I didn't drink coffee um, for eight years uh, on a, a bet that someone bet me when I worked at a coffee house that I couldn't go without drinking coffee. Did you win or lose the bet by not drinking coffee? Because that sounds like losing the bet to me. Well, like I, well, I guess eventually I started drinking coffee again, but it was eight years. Like, I don't remember if a time, I don't even know bet. that. Yeah, I don't even know that person anymore. Like it was, it was so weird. But they bet you that you couldn't drink coffee for eight years? No, they didn't say eight years. They was just said, I bet you can't go without drinking coffee. And I don't even remember, like, honestly, now I don't remember if there was a time stipulation in there. I just remember thinking, yeah, I can. I don't need coffee. And then eight years later, I decided to start drinking coffee again. Well, if there was no time stipulation stated, I would say you lost that bet. Okay. That's fair enough. 
Because you did not go without drinking coffee. I mean, you did for eight years, but that wasn't. But not indefinitely. It's right. true. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, though, I guess is the thing. Yeah, nev never bet against Jimmy. <laughs> you got to give me at least like a brownie point for endurance there. I think okay. eight years is quite impressive, yeah. There's no second place, Jamie. Yeah, it wasn't a caffeine thing, though. It was coffee, specifically coffee. Caffeine is a whole nother thing. I've had a caffeine addiction most of my life. Dr. Pepper was was the, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had my Dr. Pepper addiction. So, for, of all the times that it's come up on this show that I don't drink coffee, I, I don't think I've ever said this. I used to. I used to drink tons and tons of coffee and soda and anything else with caffeine in it, because why not? Yeah. And uh, now if I try to, it makes me ill. Not just jittery, but like sick to my stomach. And with with anxiety, like I'm just sort of neurotic and whatever. Anyway, I don't need that in my life. I don't need, uh, I don't need to freak out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if it's as simple as making a change like that, you know, there's there's nothing worse than feeling that sort of tense, anxious way. I get a bit of that myself, and it has been less of an issue since I came off the caffeine. Oh, I mean, I'm like that without the caffeine. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I don't I don't need to throw the caffeine into the mix too. Oh man! Sure, yeah. sure. I, I removed the sugar beverage thing, so like, I don't know. Do you, do you still drink? So I guess if you're not drinking caffeine, there are caffeine-free sodas though. Do you guys do sodas at all, like sugary mm. beverage? No, I never really have uh, soft drinks other than water. It's pretty much decaf water and occasional booze. Decaf water. Decaf, decaf. comma water, <laughs> comma or occasional booze. <laughs> <laughs> with punctuation that's nice yeah, yeah pretty much water and booze i you know i'll drink the some tea which i guess does have caffeine but not nearly enough to affect me so yeah pretty much pretty much tea or uh, uh water and and liquor that's all you need three food groups well i've got uh the soda stream which makes the water exciting <laughs> we've had very fun experiments with the soda soda stream in the past here i have to like i've been pondering on this actually since you brought it up and I do follow your blog Matt um occasionally I check in and see what what's up with Matt Gemmel and um you know the writing thing you shifted to the writing and I know this is technically about not talking about what we do for a living but I'm curious about the shift um that you made like that's a pretty big yeah. life shift I know you've always written as a software developer you write and um but talk about the shift a little bit that you made like what led up yeah. to the shift? And well, over the the past number of years, I I sort of gradually got back into writing on a sort of a professional basis. I suppose I had always been writing uh, as a as a hobby and on the blog and all that sort of thing for many years now. But I started to write for obviously technology magazines since it came off of my my work as a software engineer, and I started getting published. And gradually, it became more and more of my week and I guess it sort of awakened an old passion and I, I, I started to ask myself, you know, which thing am I enjoying doing more? Which thing do I feel more like I ought to be doing on a full-time basis? And obviously I, I wrestled with that back and forth. I had some conversations with my my wife, etc., etc., and got to the point where I, I just... I was getting through the day doing, you know, writing software or doing whatever it was for my clients, but I, w I wasn't happy and I was looking forward to the evenings and the weekends where I could spend more time uh, just 
Yeah. Writing, not that not that writing is any less of a challenge than software engineering in, in their own respective ways. So I decided to just commit to it and, and try and do it on a full-time basis. And I've honestly never been happier in my work than I am right now. That's awesome. That's a great... See, I love these stories of like how people make shifts and what drives them to make shifts in their life like that. I love this stuff. Yeah. Isn't that sort of your job now? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, I've been doing coaching you, stuff. and Yeah, you went from being software designer to life coach. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's been the most rewarding shift I, I feel like I've ever made. Like I somehow, you know, in the way that you talk about your writing, Matt, um, I, yeah, I feel like I finally figured out what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like something just worked with that yeah there's a there's a feeling of kind of of belonging i suppose um it's it's i I guess i always felt that i i mean i love making software i absolutely do you 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 never really stop being a developer once you've been one i think it's a whole way of thinking it's a way of looking at the world and you you instinctively start to see and think about the workings behind things and whenever something isn't good enough you start to think well i could i could write something i could build something to fix this so that never goes away but i always it's like building a bicycle yeah yeah exactly i think that you can then use or that can then go out into the world and be used by people and there's a there's a hugely attractive quality to that and i absolutely still do love the profession but I suppose over the last few years, I started to increasingly feel that it was something I was having to work at, whereas with the writing, it was it just felt so absolutely natural. And I got to that that sort of dark night of the soul, where you wake up and you think, "What have I been doing these last twenty years? Has the has the hobby become the job, and the job somehow become the hobby?" And yeah. I, I decided to just see if it was possible because you, it's strange. Even if you've been doing something on a, a hobbyist basis for all of these years, all of your, your professional life, it never really enters your consciousness that you could actually do it as a real job. There was only, <laughs> yeah. there was only ever one sort of option when I was at high school. I started going through the sciences path and found that I, lo- I loved computing science and that led to a degree, etc., etc., and I knew I loved writing, and there's never been a time where I didn't love writing, but it just never really popped into my mind that maybe that's a thing you could do. It seemed somehow, it seemed sort of irresponsible and decadent, I suppose, uh, particularly as a, a liberal arts subject, um, to try and do it as a, you know, as a full-time professional undertaking. And I, I really do wish I'd done it sooner. Although, of course, there's also the argument that. You have to go through the life experience to get yourself to the point where you're willing to try doing something and that's when you're ready to do it and not before. We shall see. <laughs> I love it. I think for, for most people, whatever their job is, there's like the kind of person who does the thing because they went to school and they became that and they trained for it and they, they went out in the world and they started doing that job and that's really what they can do. Like if you're a, I don't know, I'm just going to throw something out there. Like if you're a biochemical scientist or something that's it, there's a pretty good chance that you went to school for a long time to do that job if you're a doctor there's a pretty good chance you went to school for a long time to do that job and your like your inclination to just switch at some point is diminished and i think that for for people like me and it sounds like maybe you too there's 
this uh, maybe from when we were kids or or just like a, a societal acceptance thing. It, it seems like that's supposed to be what your your job is. Like you you find the thing that you do and then you do that thing. And there's no built-in system for people to go. Like there's no built-in system for second chances. You don't get to say, you know what, I'm not a doctor anymore and now I'm a lawyer. It's true. I mean, our society is set set up to sort of look upon those changes as I don't know midlife crises or something. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, well, you're not you're not really a writer. You're just like it's that that attitude of well, when when do you get to feel like you've done that? Yeah, and it's 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 especially bizarre because when you make all of these decisions, I mean, most of us, particularly if you go through higher education. You start on that path when you have no idea what life is about or even who you really are. You're just sort of being funneled through the educational system and you find yourself just, you never really make a a huge considered choice. You just take the next step after taking 20 other steps, many of which were made when you were, you know, an adolescent and you, you really didn't have any perspective on life. So you never get the chance to make that informed decision. Which is, I mean, this is what I've, I've been telling myself over the past months. No, no, Matt, you're you're a grown up now, and you're making a, an informed <laughs> decision. This is a responsible thing to do. I've like my current thing. I have I don't know five jobs. Yep. I, I I design software. I do podcast stuff. I'm handling ads for my friends' podcasts and my own. I'm doing music stuff. I'm doing a little bit of stuff for friends on the side. It's, I mean, like the thing that I consider my day job, obviously Vesper, um, but there's, there's like all this other fringe stuff that I do because I just love it. And there are days when I worry that either I'm stretching myself too thin, but not because I feel like I'm being stretched too thin, but because it seems like, well, this is untenable. No one person can do these things and have that work out. Well, that, that's just a kind of common wisdom, isn't it? I think the reality is probably that most of us have diverse interests. I, I'm not sure I, I even really trust or understand people that couldn't list four or five interests. Sure, you've got one job and maybe one major hobby, but we all care about these different things. And I think we're probably just in the middle of a a sort of cultural shift to a situation where people can perhaps do more than one of those things and neither one is exclusively the job or exclusively the hobby. Right. Well, you look at a guy like uh, Leonardo da Vinci. That guy did everything. Like, literally, he was like, you name a job, he did that job. And he was amazing at all of them. And we and look at that, that as... naturally leads to Dave Whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Sorry. Uh, but you, you, look at, you look at a guy like that and it seems like an aberration. Like, nobody does that. Part of what makes him so interesting is that nobody is multidisciplined. There are no true polymaths. Those people are considered rare. Well, here's, you know, I think Matt brought up a, a really a really good point in sort of a, a cultural shift happening. And it is something that I see even in like my own shift to coaching people who are either, you know, like I'm going to go freelance. I have folks who um, are, you know, like I want to make the my independent business better. Help me. Um, I want to work through some personal stuff so that I can do this, this and this. And, um, you know, like those sorts of things, I think people are becoming more aware. I mean, if some people seem to do it naturally, they, they are like, oh, I can do whatever I want. And other people struggle, you know, with that sort of 
this is what you do. You get a job and you work it until you retire and or, or whatever. But like, it seems like more people are coming around to the thinking of like, you know what, I don't have to follow the rules. I can do more things. I can, you know, I use the term design my life. I can design my life. I can design the life that I want to have. And it seems like more and more people are wrapping their heads around that and, and jumping on board and doing just that, doing more things. Do you think the internet has played a big role there? Absolutely. I mean, the ability to work from I think it's a huge home. part of it, yeah. Yeah, the the ability to work from anywhere and be connected still, absolutely. And the ability and to, to connect to those hobbies and, and turn them into something. Exactly, exactly. You've got all the, you know, the eBay and Etsy and I guess Fiverr and maybe that's a bad example, but you've just <laughs> generally got this, this sort of democratization of the boundary between uh, a hobby and something that produces an income. And in so many cases, it becomes more about the merits of the work. I don't remember the last time somebody asked me for a resume or a CV or the last time somebody in a position to hire me or give me money asked what college or university I went to. Yeah. Like, these things never come up. What matters is what I've worked on and, and what I care about and the way I approach my work. Exactly. Yeah. It's about um, what of you is exposed online, whether it's yours, you know, for programmers, I guess it's your, your GitHub or whatever, what's out there or your online portfolio. Um, I mean, I've never been asked for my my degree certificate ever, uh, to the best of my recollection. It was just all about, you know, what you've actually put out there. And that's a wonderful thing because it's more recent and it's it gives a truer impression of, of who someone is. Yeah. I, I guess there's there's a whole category of profession, doctor, lawyer, that sort of thing, where you should probably go to school for right. That Educational <laughs> credentials are beneficial yeah, for some things. You, should, for you sure. should probably, you know, focus at least for a while before you get there. But there's there's many things, especially uh, when it comes to art, culture, and even some of the softer sciences, uh, that it it's not it's not unfathomable that if you're a doctor, and this has happened many many times over, you're a doctor, but you are interested in computers. In your spare time, you learn how to write code, and you just kind of keep that up as a hobby for a while. At a certain point, you get to flip a switch. At a certain point, you can say that I'm good enough at this other thing that I'm going to pursue that for money. Absolutely. I mean, you see it with special interest software all the time. The more niche it is, the more likely it came from someone who actually is a you know, a dentist or an ophthalmologist or some specific kind of lawyer or something that started to build this thing they needed in their spare time. And at some point, as you say, they sort of became a software engineer. And you look at like the arts, uh, writing, music, uh, poetry. I mean, filmmaking is a little bit more technical, I guess. But in, in all of these, like really what you need to tell a story is life experience. That's not something that you need to go to school for. You can just write about the experience of being a human being. Indeed, and usually it's more authentic uh, because of that experience. Yeah, is I mean, you, you tell me, uh, is is there like a series of technical things that you're thinking about in the same way that you you do or did when you approached code? Or is it more just things that you understand intuitively and can then uh, work through? Or is it a combination of the two? You mean in terms of when I'm writing? Yeah, sitting down to write something. Are you are you like working through narrative structure and like playing with all the rules in your head and like doing sanity checks on on uh, the structure of things as you go through it, or is it more of like a natural flow and you either just understand it or you don't? 
it's definitely much more of a, a sort of chaotic uh, dive straight into it uh, thing. And I've had to pull back a little bit, actually, because there are very, very definite benefits when you're... I mean, I'm working on a novel and it's 90,000 words is the, the sort of genre target. And you can't really approach something like that by the the seat of your pants, as they say. There has to be, <laughs> has to be some structure and planning. But for the most part, I, I just throw myself into it and see where... Uh, where it goes. The example I'll use is as a musician, if I'm sitting down to write a song, I'm not thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to write something in this key at this tempo and there should be a, a, a key change here and a timing change there and it needs to have this structure and like I don't, I don't chart out the song. I just kind of, I sit down with a guitar and I start doing things until I hear something I like and then I build on top of that. So there's not, there's not a lot of, um, training that goes into that it's more just things that i've worked out intuitively over time yeah i mean with the arts particularly you must you must feel your way because i mean the goal is surely to create some kind of emotional resonance with other human beings and if you do that in a planned way i think it's going to create an artificiality and and dampen the the kind of the, the truthfulness i suppose and the impact of what you Create. I mean, that sounds an incredibly wankerish thing to say. <laughs> but there's, 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 there's something relevant in there. Well, you know, the, there's, uh, there's something to be said for that because you see bands that that have been around forever and they they lose popularity at a certain point. And how much of that is because you know the the target audience grew up and and grew out of it? And how much of it is that just I, I don't know. At a certain point, have you have you gotten a little too up your own ass with? the way you write and the way you approach music. And some bands are really good at staying relevant and writing great music forever. And some put out a couple of great records and then sort of uh, just keep doing stuff forever after that anyway. Yeah. And I think there can be a pressure if you, you know, you've had some success to, you know, make another one like that. And then you approach it from that different perspective. As you said, you're trying to sort of, you know, retrofit and engineer something rather than just feeling it. And the end result uh, just doesn't ring true. Right. That that earlier enthusiasm, that earlier passion, that now that you're getting paid to do something and there's all these pressures, maybe it's harder to duplicate. Also, for, for bands especially, you spend the first five, ten years of your career writing all these songs and trying to get better at what you do and trying to write songs that your your fans love. And then you get to, to go into a studio and record the best ten or whatever of those songs. And then a year later, you're supposed to produce ten more songs of that same quality. Yeah, it's it's you know it's two completely different paces, and you're you're sort of you're lacking the hunger, you know, and the, the I guess the creative freedom to just approach something because you're desperately trying to make the best thing you can rather than trying to be commercial or whatever it might be. I kind of feel like we've just said fuck the rules, and we're talking about work on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of are, but there's sort of a life element to it too, you know. I mean, it's just interestingly so this this kind of plays back to what we were talking about there's a point at which you you Matt you were talking about that sort of like am I doing what I love or you know has the the work become the the job or does the hobby become the job like at some point when you become aware it's almost like the the line just disappears and it's just life and there happens to be an income stream and you're doing what you love to do like it all just blends to I mean I feel like I've struck that rhythm you know in in my life where like I do work but it's I I really enjoy it and it just it's life like this is just life I don't know I I know exactly what you mean it's it's like 
I don't know, when I was a, a, a teenager, I would, you know, buy the video game magazines and everyone who, who's remotely interested in video games and, and reads ma- the magazines has this incredibly unrealistic but wonderful view of what it must be like to work for a video game magazine. <laughs> they're, they're actually playing, paying me for this. You know, you're just shooting away all day. It's absolutely fantastic. Of course, the realities are very different, but you can reach that point. And I certainly have this year in your your adult life where, as you said, Jamie, the boundary just goes away and you, you think this is exactly what I would be doing if I'd won the lottery. I guess that that's actually the real question. You know, if you won 100 million or whatever it might be, uh, would you still be getting up at whatever time you get up and at your desk at nine o'clock in the morning doing this same thing? And if you can answer yes to that, then, <laughs> you know, the, the division between work and, and hobby and play has gone away and you should probably keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's I've had these moments where I go to, you know, do my my work thing and I get all excited and giddy just like I'm going to go like when you're a kid and you're like, let's play school or whatever. And it's like, I'm going to be the teacher and or whatever. I'm going to be the student and I'm going to do this. And it has that same feeling like I relate to it in that way. It's like I'm just excited and I feel like I'm going to go play and and then and then I'll be done in an hour and and I'll take a break no I I know I mean I obviously I work very long hours I I, I did when I was a software engineer but especially now I I work pretty much constantly seven days a week and during the weekdays it's obviously nine till six or so and then a couple hours for dinner and then another couple hours of work and my my wife has obviously said on a few occasions and not you know in the last little while you're, you're working too much, you know, you're spending too much time working. And my answer is, man, I haven't worked in six months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, you and can, it really I, feels that way. It does. I feel like I suffer from that where I don't, as a result of that, the feeling that I'm not working has led me to, uh, I don't know, guilt. Yeah, do you get paranoid about like... Well, if this isn't if this isn't work, this isn't a real job, and then, uh, I don't know, even though things are going great, sometimes like, maybe I should just go get a job. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? This isn't supposed to work. How long can this work? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a vague sort of sense of cultural shame about it. Yeah. You, you, the, go, you go for a haircut or something and someone asks what you do and you occasionally make up something that sounds more respectable that <laughs> like you're actually making an effort at life, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, as as a single dude, I end up having this conversation um, somewhat frequently uh, with, with strangers. The question of what do you do? And I'm like, fuck, I've... I don't know. I'm working that out. I mean, which makes me sound unemployed. Uh, but it's like I could list four or five things that I do. And it's always followed up by, oh, so what are you doing? You're not working. And I'm like, when's that? I'm just sleep, it, sleep mostly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I sleep. Sometimes I'll go grab a drink with friends, but sometimes even that's work, like work related, if you want to call it that. And I think work is a, a four letter word for most people. But to me, it's just kind of. I don't know. You you find stuff you like doing, and you you find a way to get paid to do it, and that's how stuff's supposed to work out. And your your comment about what would you do if you won the lottery? I, I mean, I haven't, but I I sort of live my life as if I had. I sort of wake up when I want to, and I do the things that I want to do, and I I work on things that I want to work on, and I'm not rolling around in money or anything. But uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, that would also be nice. But I I don't think that my version of the American dream is is that far off from 
or is as unattainable in my mind as it it might uh, institutionally be for most people. Yeah, that's a that's a sort of uh, an, a sort of twenty first century new form of stratification. We are the the post work generation or something like that, in the sense that we don't really think of work as work because we that found makes something it sound really lazy. It does, yeah. <laughs> a sort of daytime TV watching generation. <laughs> Just watching a House of Cards all day instead of, and even that because I'm doing binge a watching. show. Binge watching, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a show with Renee called the TV Show, and we've got sponsors on that show. I'm literally being paid to watch TV now. That is disgusting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, none of this stuff should work. None of it. Like it shouldn't be possible that you could just decide one day. You know what? I'm going to be a software developer. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a podcaster. I'm going to do these things. And Why? Just go Why shouldn't them. it work? It, 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 again, institutionally, it's the audacity of saying that you're going to do that. It's shocking. It's, it's people, real people with real jobs would look at that and call you uh, unrealistic. You're a dreamer. You're, you're an idiot. You're irresponsible. I'm not saying you. I'm, I'm yes, you are, mostly, Dave. I'm mostly taking pointing it at myself. No. Mostly pointing at myself here. It's because that degree of, uh, I, I don't want to use the word professional, but that sort of degree of uh, work mobility is unimaginable to the older generation because they were you know, funneled into a particular lane of work so early. Whereas a lot of the things that we can do, particularly the, the creative arts and certainly software engineering where you probably don't necessarily absolutely he said very carefully need a degree in order to get started and do it seriously uh, pretty much anyone can just pick it up as long as they've got the the motivation and the persistence and a, a basic degree of, of ability i think some people are just tuned into like I, I, I was starting to say earlier there's in my mind two kinds of people where this is concerned the people who who approach something methodically and you need to go to school, you need to get the education, you need to get the training. And there's people who just sort of attach to something and they do the things they do because they love doing them. Do you do you make software because that's what you're trained to do and that's how that's what you know, the kind of work that you know and you know you are capable of doing it and you're good at it? Or do you do it because you really love making things or you really love making things that people use? Or, or like, are you thinking in terms of your process or the end product? And and I, I think there's a real split there. And you can see it in people's work. Definitely. I mean, you would you would presumably want to be working with people, not just to to be one yourself, but to be working with people in the I think the latter category who are doing it because they, they you know they embarked upon it themselves and discovered it and decided it was something that they loved. <laughs> and then it was quiet. Dramatic silence. Uh, sorry. No, I think my dog is. <laughs> I think my dog is getting sick. Oh no! I Hang was. On, give me just a second, guys. No problem. I was pondering the. the I, I don't know. It feels deep, Matt. It feels deep. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, this is at quarter to six p.m. here in Edinburgh as well. So you know, I'm at, at my energy low for the day, Jamie, and I can still come out <laughs> with stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Impressive. But now, we're, now we're on to the sick dog storyline. This is a soap opera-like, sudden dramatic turn of events. It really is. And I wonder what's up, because interesting. So I have I have cats. I don't know if you have pets at all. We don't, know. But Not I have a moment. I have a sick cat in the household. Oh, so gosh. This morning. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe something's going around, even though we're all spread all over the world here. 
but yeah. And with, yeah. with two different species as well, that's a frightening thing. <laughs> exactly. Something's that's the sort of thing on. that might go into one of my novels. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pets of America are all getting sick at once. Indeed. Oh, man. Well, what else is going on? Um, really just writing, writing, writing. I'm, I'm set to finish the first drafts uh, of this novel by the end of the month. That, uh, that is inspiring. I love it. I love it's it. Been a, it's been a slog, I tell you. It's really, I, I like to tell people it's very much a blue collar job. It's not sitting in coffee shops, tap, 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 tap away. <laughs> Look how fantastic life is. You're really, you're kind of up against the coal face with a pickaxe for several hours a day. Yeah. To carve those words out. I'm not looking forward to the major revision. You know, you, you do the first the garbage draft, as it's called, and then spend a while revising, and then at that point, hopefully get some beta readers to take a look at it, give you some feedback, and then the final revision. So I'm just focusing on the next couple of weeks to finish the initial thing, and then I can leave it out of my sight for a week or two before <laughs> I go back with the red pen. Very, very cool. I, that's got to right, feel. I'm, I'm back. Oh, we're talking about Matt's near completion of his novel, um, but we the want, first we draft. We want to know how the dog is, though. How's the yes. dog? Uh, she threw up on my couch. Uh, oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, she's fine. Just, sometimes she just gets an upset stomach. Oh. This is not a. I mean, it's not a common thing, but it's not an un, like it's not anything I'm worried about. Oh, is there great. any chance at all it could be a reaction to Scottish accents? <laughs> no, you're you're uh, you're going through my earbuds. She has no idea. Although you said I was quite bassy before, you know, dogs have got sensitive ears. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's hearing you. Just, I don't think anybody would respond to your accent by getting ill. <laughs> I know, quite the opposite. I think. Right. Yeah, I've, I've had some experience of that. <laughs> Ladies. Ladies. Yeah, I think that was covered in a, a previous episode, wasn't it, Dave? The accent Amy, thing. Amy Jane Gruber at, at, uh, at oh, the old conference. Right. It was a couple of years ago, last year. That's right, talking about the, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I think Specifically I think, uh, your accent. Yes, I believe uh, dreamy was the, the word that was, was mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> That's a word that sticks with you. <laughs> yes. That, that was my takeaway from the event, yes. Oh, that's awesome. So I I don't know now if we should leave this all in or if I should have a, a cut point here. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, we just kind of rambled for a few minutes when, you know, when you were off. But, um, yeah, I don't know. However you want, well, you want to I, call I it. Might just, I might just jump cut from when I left to when I came back. Dog so some up. sort of dramatic, dramatic music in the middle. You know, will Dave's dog be okay? Exactly. Dun, dun, dun. That would be great. And then you just leave them hanging for a few seconds, maybe have a commercial, and we come, oh no, thankfully Dave's dog is fine. And uh, she was just on the, the Doggist. Oh yeah, I saw the, your the, thing. The, the, the website. It was, it's weird. It's like, a, the, it's like Humans of New York, but for dogs, I guess. I met this right. guy, weirdly, I, I met him at a party at, a, at an art thing, like a, a couple of months ago. And he was a really weird dude. Like, I like. I don't know. It's just sort of a, struck me as a strange dude. And uh, then the other day I was walking the dog and I was just going to get a bagel at the bagel shop a couple blocks away. And I'm crossing the street and this guy's crossing the other direction. He walks past me and from the corner of my eye, I see him stop and turn and then follow me. <laughs> like, I, like he, he looks down at the dog, stops, turns and follows me. And I'm like, 
Oh, crap. Uh, well, no, it's just whenever I've got her, because she's Italian greyhounds, they're an unusual breed, so I always get the same barrage of questions. Like, oh, what kind of dog is that? Is she fast? Is that as big as she's going to get? How old is she? What's her <laughs> name? Like, the same, I just want to get her business cards printed up. You should totally create a, a little, like, yeah, the frequently asked questions page for her. Maybe you set up a website for exactly. her with pictures. Yeah, when people are like, can I get a picture of your dog? I say, oh, here, just, on the card, just go to that website. There's plenty of pictures of her already. Have a great day, and then I can continue on with my life. Exactly. I actually thought that was going to go the other way. I thought that was the start of like a police procedural episode where the killer targeted men with the same breed of dog. <laughs> <laughs> that also crossed my mind. But this, So this guy follows me back across the street, and he's like, excuse me, can I take a picture of your dog? And uh, I'm like, and sure. you, you asked first if that was a euphemism of any kind. <laughs> well, he did He did look down at Pixel, so I figured it's probably okay. Uh, so there we are on the, the street corner, and he kneels down, and he takes a, a, a squeaky ball out of his pocket. And he's got this great big camera he's set prepared. up. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this isn't just some dude. This isn't a tourist with a camera going around taking pictures of stuff, and he liked my dog. This guy takes pictures of dogs. And uh, he stands up, and he hands me his card and says, thank you. And as soon as, I saw, as, soon as he's taking the card out of his pocket... I realized who he was. Like I recognized him from that that weird interaction at a party a couple months prior. Thankfully, he didn't recognize me, and we didn't have to like stand there and have a, another awkward conversation. But he hands me the card, and I'm like, okay, cool. And the next day, sure enough, she's up on the website. Hmm. Nice. She's famous now. I am. I am proud to say that there's a. Like, I guess it's a Tumblr thing. Each post has a certain number of notes, which I guess a note is either somebody leaving a comment or somebody liking it or somebody re-Tumblr-ing. <laughs> Like a retweet, yeah, like but reposting or resharing or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever the hell they call it. Uh, but of, of all the dogs, at least on the main page, she had more than double the number of notes of any other dog. Said like a proud father. So I'm pretty yep. happy about that. Yep. Is she and, more? Uh, is she more internet famous than you, Dave? She probably is. She's got like twelve thousand likes on Instagram right now. I see you are keeping track. She's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, holy crap! I mean. Yeah, I mean, my pictures get like 30 likes on Instagram. You might want to grow the beard a bit. (laughs) I think uh, maybe I'm just, I will never be the level of uh, likable or adorable my dog is. See, that is a kind of statement that is revisited in therapy sessions years later. (laughs) Why? My dog is a better person than I am. Wow. Most, most, Most pets are. I don't know. True. I think that's probably the top candidate for a tombstone inscription for you so far, Dave. I aspire to be more like my dog. Hmm. She's very friendly, very likable. I don't know. I, I worry she's a little racist, but other than that. Is, is that, I mean, would it be breedist or is it toward people? Uh, towards towards dogs. Like, she loves all people to to a fault. But with dogs, she's really selective. And if you're the wrong color or size or breed of dog, if you're if you're a dog that looks more or less like her, she's okay with it. Anything else, and she's not okay with she's it. She's a breedist. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, she's a she's like a greyhound supremacist. Oh. <laughs> 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 but other than that, she's great. That's probably going to affect the number of likes she gets on Instagram. It might well, now. now that you've said it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, well, we'll see. Yep, you might have just ruined it for her fame. I should get her her own Instagram account. You should. Why not? People do that for their offspring all the time. 
Yeah, but people can use phones. Yeah. Puppies are people too. What are you going to do after the show, Matt? Uh, I'm probably going to have dinner since it'll be about 1800 or so. Uh, and then, you know, you guessed it, I'm going to do some more writing. More we've writing. Got into a bit of, we've got into a bit of a kick watching that TV show Castle uh, in the last couple of months. So we tend to watch an episode or two of that every night, which weirdly has had a, a beneficial effect on my, my motivation to sit and write. Because, because the writing on that show is so terrible? Well, it's more because, I mean, it's incredibly, I don't know if you're you're familiar with it, you, Dave, obviously at least of a passing familiarity, it's an incredibly cheesy mix between a, a very gentle police procedural and, uh, I guess, a romantic comedy sitcom thing. Yeah, and it's, that's it's, a great way to describe it. It's also very formulaic. Extremely, yes. I mean, so, so much so that they're just sort of celebrating the ridiculousness of the police procedurals, I think. Uh, it's a sort of CSI pastiche thing crossed with fan fiction, I suppose. <laughs> but the, the, the protagonist is a, a writer who dresses worryingly similarly to me. <laughs> so I, I kind of c- come off the end of a castle episode thinking, yeah, I should probably write some more words now. <laughs> That's awesome. Castle is a show that um, it's, I, I don't hate watch it. I really do enjoy watching it, but I know exactly what I'm watching. This is, this is kind of junk food. It's like this is the Starbucks of TV shows. Kind of. <laughs> I, I mean. Exactly. You can order the same thing in, in any, you know, drive through on the planet regardless of what language the sign is in and you know what you're going to get, it's like that. Right. I know that the show is going to open with uh, the setup for the murder and then it's going to, at the point of the grisly reveal, cut over to some lighthearted stuff with Castle's family. I know that the the first handful of people aren't going to be the people that they need to go after and there's going to be some break in the case and I know that the real break in the case <laughs> is going to come later as a result of whatever is going on with Castle's family life. Usually... Uh, given to them via advice from his daughter, and then it resolves happily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His daughter, who inexplicably is the the most well-adjusted human being in the world, despite her father being a, a sort of 12-year-old, basically. Yeah, and coming from a broken home. And, and never knew his own father, and, yeah. Yeah, like there's, there's a, she's got everything working against her. But uh, yeah, it's but it's still a show that like I know what I'm getting, but it's so watchable. Like everybody on this show is great. Yeah, and you, you don't have to, you, you never really need to invest a great deal of emotion because even when they do the occasional dark episode, it's couched in such a patently ludicrous framework uh, that, <laughs> you, you know, you can't help but just sit back and enjoy it. It is just, it is just sugar. We're getting dangerously into the TV show territory here. I feel like I should get Renee on. But my, my problem with the, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the the ending, the the last the the are you how far into the show are you done with it or are you not caught up yet oh we only we only uh, started watching on demand uh, a month or two ago so we're mid-season three so please no spoilers no spoilers got it i will say um the guy who plays detective ryan seamus dever has been on unprofessional really yeah so you you are right now on a show uh that he has also been on wonderful uh, i i feel extremely honored to be in his presumably uh, following his Irish footsteps. And uh, I think he was even sitting in your chair when he recorded. So. <laughs> you know, I wondered because it had been adjusted a little bit too high for me. If, if anything, he might be shorter than you. Well, Dave, you've met me. There are a few people in this world that are shorter than me. 
You say that, but like my mental image of you, I don't think of you as being a short person. That's probably the deep, resonant, and dare I say it again, dreamy voice and the, <laughs> the small man syndrome that creates a larger-than-life personality. <laughs> I don't know. Most most small men with that that problem will come off that way, but you're not like if I had if somebody asked me to describe you, uh, your height would not even be a factor. Like I, that's not even a thing that I thought about. Well, that's something, I suppose. Jamie, do you have any any thoughts on the height, height? the height thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I feel like you're waiting in the wings to just like throw something in here. No, the height thing. I, I try not to address the height. I don't. I have. I don't know. I'm very non-judgmental towards people's heights. So like it's it's like you know being a a, a relatively tall female. Um, I remember always. I don't know. I'm really derailing here. Um, like when it comes to dating women who won't date shorter men or men who won't date taller women like I've never been a I guess the heightest <laughs> so like, it just is so not a factor to me I don't know height's so irrelevant I guess in my mind so I, I don't know well, yeah we've got some neighbors here where the chap is I think it's slightly shorter than myself and his his wife is sort of nearer to your height Jamie yeah. and you know they seem to manage perfectly well I guess it depends whether it bothers you I mean you and I Jamie have been at a number of conferences yeah together and I mean I only come over and speak to her when she's sitting down to, you know. <laughs> and honestly like I seriously have no idea how tall you are like you could be eye level or taller or I have no idea honestly is that yeah when you're when you're, when you're sitting down I mean you, you know, she's, <laughs> she's like Nicole Kidman I'm like Tom Cruise's son <laughs> oh man no for yeah. me there's there's people who are taller than me and then everybody else interesting yeah that's mm. really what it comes down to I mean, I, I guess I do tend to prefer taller women, but not to any ridiculous degree. I guess I notice I notice when a, if a, a man is really tall, and I just say a man because usually if a guy is tall enough to make me feel small, because it's very rare that I feel small. And um, like just, you know, like a tiny lady, I don't mean to you know, go down that avenue either, but like, <laughs> but you know, like I, it, it's actually kind of a pleasant feeling to feel small at times, like like to feel maybe delicate or feminine in a small way. I don't know if that sounds That's weird. That's why I'm so happy all the time. <laughs> uh, it's not a feeling I get to celebrate often. So I it just, I do kind of like appreciate standing next to somebody who's gigantic at times. And, um, and I do notice, I guess, then. So I, I made the comment that I don't really notice. But I guess I do if somebody's like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, yeah, those people freak me out. It's not freaky. It's just, it's kind of awesome. People, like hanging out with Craig Hockenberry, that guy is like he's taller than anybody. <laughs> he's the tallest and man ever. He's just and he's got those giant hands and he's just I mean he's a, a very gentle giant that Craig, but he's uh, he's a big dude and it's hard not to be aware of it. Like you don't want to make a thing out of it, but it's hard not to just feel that presence. And maybe I don't know what it is, but something about me. I mean I'm I'm not a short person. I'm six two, so it's uh, I'm on the taller side. But being around somebody taller than maybe that's it. Maybe it's because I'm used to being, you know, at least on the taller end of the scale of whatever room I'm in. I'm when I'm near people who are dramatically taller than me, it freaks me out. It puts me it puts me off a little bit. You get over that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's more startling to stand in a group of small children. <laughs> that's cre- that's scarier. 
Because you're gonna, like you're afraid you're going to step on one no, of them. No, there's just so many of them, and they're all around. Anyway, I'm not really scared of children, but there was a time in my life that I was a little fear fearful of children. Is this that thing like, would you rather be attacked by uh, <laughs> a swarm uh, of children or a no? It's no, it was like uh, one one horse the size of or one one duck the size of a horse or like ten horses the sizes of the size of ducks or something like that. Yeah, I, I remember reading about that. Yeah, I'm like the, the, not really the, sure how to respond. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see a duck the size of a horse. I would not. A dog. Those things are terrifying. Uh-huh. There's a there's a there's a series of. I mean, you look it up on YouTube, but if you just just go to YouTube and search for duck penis. <laughs> oh, again today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then you know, like their their stuff down there is scary. It's like violent and and crazy and awful, and uh, I'm trying to imagine a, a an amorous duck chasing after me the size of a horse. I I would not. I I, I mean. You know, I love podcasts where you, you really find out something about the hosts as well as the guests, like Dave's browser history. Yeah, that's probably not even the worst of it. That is, that is deeply disturbing. I mean, the stuff Google knows about me. <laughs> Google knows That's what I want much. on my tombstone. That's what I want on my tombstone. It's just a printout of my browser history. That'd be great. That, that's kind of a, a lengthy tombstone. There's a lot of work so for somebody. It sounds like you should be, you should be using DuckDuckGo instead of Google, perhaps on more <laughs> than one front there, Dave. <laughs> Somebody on Twitter a couple of weeks ago suggested that uh, what they would want on their tombstone is not like the the, the standard Twitter bio, husband, father, developer, uh, Christian. It should say, it should just list the way you died. Yeah. Because I like... Crushed by I a duck the size of horse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, you're walking to the cemetery, at least then it's interesting trivia as you go through. You'd probably take the time and acknowledge and think about these people. Like mm. I don't, I don't need to know that this person was a beloved brother. I mean that that's fine for them and their family, but give me some trivia. Man, like, maybe they have a sort of subtitle with their degree of removal from Kevin Bacon or something. That would be great too. <laughs> you could have like you could have uh, all kinds of parties in cemeteries where you go around like scavenger hunt style, like okay, like bingo, like you, everybody gets a card and you got to find the the people with who died of these various diseases. I can mm. see nothing wrong with that. <laughs> 